in the early days, you know, again, we called it international peasant food. And when Harvard came on board as our lead investor to roll it out, they were saying to Isaac at the time, why don't you go to markets and find out what people want to eat? Why are you, you know, sort of forcing this agenda? And Isaac said, that's just it. You guys don't get it. He goes, I don't want people to tell me what they want to eat. I want to tell people what they ought to eat. Oh, wow. And that's a pretty heavy statement to somebody that's giving you $30 million, you know? (laughs) Welcome to the catch-up. Introducing your hosts. Eli Aruth. Editor-in-chief. And... Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously. Of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms. It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy! There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right. And welcome to the catch-up. Hey, Jeff. Yes, sir. Today, we're going to talk House of Blues. Okay. What do you know about them? Well, I went to the House of Blues growing up. Like That was kind of the venue in Anaheim that I visited. So, Mm -hmm. I know it's a live music venue, southern food restaurants. They're in at least 11 markets. So, the first location opened back in 92, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Had a capacity, I believe, of only like 180 people. The founding team included actors like Dan Aykroyd. James Belushi, the band Aerosmith invested, Harvard University, just to name a few. And in 2006, after growing locations in 11 major cities, House of Blues was acquired by Live Nation and Live Nation merged with Ticketmaster, now they're Live Nation Ticketmaster. And to this day, House of Blues has over 2,500 employees. They serve over 2 million fans and restaurant goers a year. So who's on the podcast with us today, Eli? We got employee numero uno, (laughs) the ground floor, Mr. Michael Grozier. He's now the EVP of clubs and theaters for Live Nation. And we got Walter Savitsky, the National Restaurant Director of House of Blues. He's responsible for the menu and the bar direction. And I want all the juice about the history of House of Blues. I want all of it. It's juicy, man. (laughs) Gentlemen. Welcome to the catch up. Thanks for having us. Yeah, man. Thank Th- you. Thanks for coming now. It's, a, it's an honor hearing you guys. I want to go right back to 1992, if that's cool. Yeah, 92, man. That's cool. Let's I go was, there. I was four years old. Jeff, we were like four and a half, five. Sure. Um, <laughs> Michael, what were you doing in 1992? In 92? Well, I had just stopped. Uh, I'd worked for Isaac first at the Hard Rock Cafe, and that's, that's an amazing story. When uh, I had started with him at the Hard Rock in New York City, where they're turning every chair in the restaurant 17 times a day from 11 o'clock in the morning till 2 o'clock, maybe sometimes 4 o'clock on the weekends. Uh, And so Isaac ultimately, though, had sold the Hard Rock and retired, uh, and I went and ran nightclubs for a company called Entertainment One. And then when Isaac was starting up House of Blues, he hired me to be the GM and director of training, and and we started in Harvard Square. And Michael, when you say Isaac, you're talking about Isaac... Isaac uh, Tigret. Tigret, who was one of the founders of House of Blues and, as you mentioned, Hard Rock Cafe. Yep. So, yeah, a legend in the business, I think, and, and one of the most creative, a guy who, who married spirituality, creativity, food, booze, and music all together. You so, know? Let's, so let's talk about him a little bit. Why, why did he start House of Blues? It's a great story. He, he was uh, retired from, from Hard Rock. He had taken his money uh, when he sold Hard Rock. Uh, Motown sold that day. 
Hard Rock sold that day, and then there's a building in Dallas where I was living at the time. The building sold for 107 million. Hard oh. Rock Cafe sold for about 86 million, and then Motown sold for 66 million. Jeez. You can imagine that. Yeah. And uh, and so anyway, so he sold his part of the Hard Rock. He was retired. He went on to build a, a free hospital in uh, the most the most poorest the poorest place in India, uh, just for the the villagers you know to be taken care of. And uh, a couple guys, Pat Lyons, who's a legendary club guy in Boston and uh, the Northeast, uh, as well as Larry Bolzarian and Dan Aykroyd, were starting up a little blues club, and they came to Isaac and said, we want you to be involved. You're the hard rock guy. You need to be part of this. And Isaac was, I've done it. You know, I don't want to do it. Uh, And then he went and saw his swami, uh, Sai Baba, who told him, hard rock was high school. This is college. You need to do this. And so that that became the little blues club. The Blues Brothers Bar became the House of Blues almost overnight. And then it was off to the races, both creatively and uh, and spiritually to a large degree. Wait, so are you saying that House of Blues was started because a Swami told Isaac Isaac to yeah. to do it, and if he didn't, then House of Blues may not exist in the same fashion it does today. Oh, it most certainly wouldn't have existed. It most certainly wouldn't have existed. What what had burnt? Had, was he burnt out? Did you feel from Hard Rock? What, what was his vibes? I mean, you got paid right on yeah. the exit, but uh, I think uh, he was he was definitely tired. You know, I mean he. He lived a he lives an amazing life. I mean, it's 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 full of. On one hand, uh, he can be the most generous and, and creative guy in the world. On the other hand, he could be mean spirited and and uh, uh, really difficult, you know. But in between, there was this secret sauce that was just magical to be around. Very charismatic guy, uh, you know. And, and he built into the business things like take time to be kind, love all, serve all, unity and diversity. And he believed it. He preached it he practiced it you know uh, when it came to the business and and uh, it was really cool so what did those early days look like so it opened in 92 yeah house blues like what did that original location look like who's in the room you're the gm at the time is dan Aykroyd sitting at the bar at times does he just phone in from home what's, oh no no dan like? was very involved dan was very involved from the beginning a lot of what ultimately transpired you know dan was also his fingerprints are all over the brand mm. um you know when when we started it was going to be more of a restaurant because he's the hard rock guy right so he always tried to bring live music into hard rock but it yeah. never quite worked mm. you know so this was going to be more of a supper club with live music included. Mm. And so we did this little house, not much different than your building here in Seriously. Harvard Square. Smaller, but similar, you know. Smaller than this? Smaller than this. <laughs> He's talking about and, our office right now. It is not that big. <laughs> and, and we had 180 seats, uh, you know, f- for a restaurant upstairs and downstairs. But then we took out the upstairs seats, 120 seats, and turned it into a little 200, 240 capacity little blues club. Wow. And so, you know, we opened with that and uh, we went out and raised $36 million. We had leases in New Orleans, Chicago, and LA at the time. Uh, He raised $36 million and that funded the rest of the openings. But I think what was really interesting for us is we started as a supper club that was going to do live music. And when we, uh, our first big show in New Orleans, New Orleans was a bigger building and we were starting to scratch our heads. We could make a living in Boston on blues, you know, just based on. You know, the, the uh, John Mooney's and uh, Rick Russell's and, you know, uh, these, these guys that were playing up there at the time and the occasional Dr. John and people like that. 
But now we have to sell 900 tickets in New Orleans, or at the time it was 1,000. And uh, we had an opportunity to do the B-52s early on, and we really scratched our heads about whether we should do it or not. But then we did it and sold out in seconds, and we had a $30,000 bar and wow. you know big numbers uh, in the restaurant. And it was like, okay, we're changing the design in Los Angeles. We're a live music venue you know, mm. that, that has great food you know, as opposed to a restaurant that did shows. Got you. That's a, that's interesting because I, so you're saying that the House of Blues, at least in the original location, was kind of proposed as a supper club. So like food and music, kind of in more or less equal nature. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me more about the some of the issues that that you were aware of with with the hard rock because you'd mentioned that they had tried to integrate music kind of w- into the restaurant and not not going so well and. And Eli and I have seen a number of restaurants like they they tried to integrate music in a way, but it's maybe just not at the level to where it becomes a regular draw or there there's there just seems to be uh, a tough harmony to balance both music and food. And I'm wondering if like what you saw at the Hard Rock and, and House of Blues kind of uh changed did it change at all yeah no i think you really touched on a really good point there because it's really true and i think you guys see this in any restaurant when you're trying to do you know uh world cuisine and you're all over the board it's you have to have a really talented disciplined team to do that yeah and it's the same thing with music you can't sort of do music you know, you, you need to really invest in your stage. You really have to think through your your uh, audiovisual, you know, your whole package, right? And then even entertaining the artists, where the artist's going to stay. Mm. So the Hard Rock was always a restaurant in those early days where Isaac tried to set it up, plug and play, ready to go. But it was still a restaurant. It, you couldn't – we would do shows in the Dallas Hard Rock. You know, big touring artists, Terrence Trent Darby, all kinds of crazy people back in the day. Um, but it still felt like you're in a restaurant. It didn't mm. feel like a live music venue. And I think what, what Isaac and, and what we ultimately got right was that sort of happy marriage of restaurant uh, and live music venue. But to your point as well, I think the thing that was really interesting was that because we started with a heavy food you know, intention, uh, there's always a lot of dynamic tension between the, the live music guys and the restaurant guys because at the end of the day, who's more important? You know? Well, let's and, talk about that. Let's yeah. talk about that. I mean, Walter... Do you and, and and please chime in too, Mike? Like, what did what did the original menu look like, and what does it look like now, and and how has it changed over time? I'll take the original menu. If you yeah, want let's take, run it. Sure. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the original menu. The intention was we wanted to do international peasant food. Isaac's idea was blues. <laughs> you know, it was uh, an indigenous American art form. You know, fueled by the rhythms of Africa and the strings from Europe and kind of meeting in the Delta. So he felt like. You know, uh, we brought in folk art, which was the visual blues, and then he wanted food that, you know, uh, that people created for themselves and became, it was inexpensive to do, but it was delicious to, to enjoy. So on the early menu, we had pad thai noodle salads, we mm. had tandoor chicken out of a, a tandoor clay uh, oven, you know, we did pizzas back then. Um, uh, we also, uh, we had our smoker, we did, you know, we did... Uh, great ribs we'd smoke pork chops we'd do mm. uh smoke chicken out of their barbecue chicken yeah so we were you know we were definitely touching a lot of different bases in terms of the food and in the early days you know again we called it international peasant food and when harvard came on board as our lead investor to roll it out they were saying to isaac at the time why don't you go to markets and find out what people want to eat why are you you know sort of forcing this agenda and Isaac said, that's just it. You guys don't get it. He goes, I don't want people to tell me what they want to eat. I want to tell people what they ought to eat. 
Oh, wow. And that's a pretty heavy statement to somebody yeah. that's giving you $30 million, you know? <laughs> and, and that's, uh, but that was the genius and the, and the, and the difficulty that Isaac created for his, you know, for, uh, for everybody. Yeah. You know? I mean, it sounds like a good foot forward in retrospect now with the lens that we have is that he could have made a menu just like every other big shop. And he kind of just got out of that with Hard Rock Cafe, which I'm assuming over time that menu got limited based on his original vision for it right and then becomes the standard cafe food and i think he was probably in earnest trying to get away from that trying to make a menu that international peasant food like what a thing to brand yeah yeah which also for a small club like yeah i mean you described at least three different types of international cuisine from from thai to indian to uh you know southern roots so i think that's that's pretty. That's pretty aggressive, especially when you think about uh, the well. How many locations you guys ha- have now? If you guys had to translate a global menu of that scale, like I just have headaches. Like kind of thinking about <laughs> all you know, having a having a tandoor oven in all eleven locations is like a thing of itself. So, Walter, tell me more about how what the menu um, is like now in House of Blues. Uh, sure. Well, first, I'd like to mention that. Uh, our venues have different rooms so we have a restaurant we have a foundation room which is kind of more like an upscale dining area we do a lot of special events we do gospel brunch all of these things have different menus essentially Mm. so a lot of the things that mike was speaking about um we still have so we smoke all our meats in house we use uh, awesome cook shacks um, we c- kind of stick to that Southern inspired food, mm. but we also do have things like tacos, but we'll put brisket on it to make it kind of Southern and Dope. street corn and make it kind of Southern with some mm. Cajun spice and whatnot. Mm. And then the bar too. The bar's crazy. The bar's awesome. <laughs> That's the one I know, like from an Anaheim growing up <laughs> and seeing the bar and, and the gospel brunch. Yeah. Gospel Is that your brunch? idea? Uh, it was Isaac's idea, but he came to myself and two other guys and said, I want to do a gospel brunch every Sunday. And uh, we said, okay. Yeah. And then the next question was, what's that? You know, we <laughs> had no yeah. idea, you know, and Isaac said, I want a Southern style buffet and I want to get, you know, great gospel talent and I want to do it on Sundays as a brunch. And uh, so we did our first one, you know, we, we, you know, we had our, our uh, grits and biscuits and or biscuits and gravy and, you know, all that, uh, all the things that you would expect on a, on, on a brunch. Uh, and then we had a gospel band on stage and, and, uh, it was a great start for us because Steven Tyler and Joe Perry from Aerosmith who were investors yeah. and this guy, Mark Parento, who was like the, the rock jock of Boston mm-hmm. all came to the first brunch. And so it goes on and, and, you know, <laughs> it went for about four hours because we just, Oh, wow. We were just so happy to do it. We had no idea how to end it, you know? <laughs> so they got on the air, though, the next day and were raving about it. And we were sold out for months, you oh, know, wow. in, in advance. And so we started, added a second brunch and then ultimately a third brunch. And we were still sold out for weeks and weeks in advance. So, um, but it was uh, one of those things that, you know, we'd close the music hall at four in the morning. And uh, I'd be back at six in the morning and, you know, we'd be loading the chairs back in and setting up the tables for brunch. And I used to call it a miracle every Sunday, you know, a miracle <laughs> that we got through at the gospel brunch. So you, you guys had big investors and big, uh, big names tied to the brand early on. Was it always a success? Was it success out the gate? Like uh, people come in there and then, well, we're going to open up four new locations with on the strength of, I'm assuming, Isaac's past and the history that he had with Hard Rock. Like how... 
What was that like early on? Immediately successful? Uh, the original venue was immediately su- successful. Uh, and there was a lot of pressure on Isaac coming from hard rock. You know, there, it, he was also known as a guy who spent a lot of money. You know, mm. wasn't afraid to spend money. So we built New Orleans. We built it on our budget. You know, I think at the time it was about $7.4 million. Now these buildings cost 35 40 50 million dollars to yeah. do. Um, but anyway, and then we got to LA and Isaac was adamant that this place in Los Angeles that I think, you know, you've had a chance to visit back yeah. in the day. It was a really special place. I mean, the bars swung open, you know, into the showroom and it was a, it was crazy. But I think in the early days we, we, we trapezed between, you know, bankrupt and major problems to flush with money and nothing to do with it. Yeah. You know, it, uh, it definitely went back and forth like that for the first five or six years. What, what did you learn from those times? Like what, when you were, you know, on the brink of it, was it like, oh shit, we spent too much on this location. We don't know how we're going to make it back. And then you go after a new investor. Like what, what are those like moments? For me, it was, it was still, we've got to focus on the product. That's the only thing I could control, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, whether it was how we train people to what we're serving in the kitchen, we always had a, a real high expectation of the quality of the product, the quality of the service and the quality of the experience. And I yeah. think even then we, we had a, totally different sort of approach compared to our peers. Um, you know, we, we taught our people about folk art. You know, like the folk art wasn't just wallpaper on the walls. These are very particular artists, you know. Jimmy Lee Suddeth who worked in mud and root dyes and t- to create all these self-portraits or Archie Byron who worked in a uh, logging mill, kept yeah. the sawdust at night and used glue to create sculptures. Like these were really interesting people doing really cool stuff, you know. And that was important to us back in the day to make sure the, the staff understood you know? Yeah. At what point? Because you mentioned with the, uh, with one of the venues that when you booked the the B fifty twos, right? There was kind of a shift from potentially be, being kind of a blues only club to expanding different genres. From that moment when you guys kind of sold out the you know the thousands of t- the thousand plus tickets and and the new venue, was that something where the direction of booking kind of opened uh like did it did it open from like a wide open perspective was that now all genres were now booked kind of dependent how did you guys make that decision relative to booking and how did that evolve over time because the house of blues that eli and i grew up with is very different from the house of blues that someone was experiencing in the 90s um, cause you know, Eli and I were watching pop a Blink 182 shows, yeah. pop punk. Well, I mean, I've been to metal shows at the house of blues. Mm-hmm. So there, the house of blues of, you know, of each decade has kind of evolved and I'm sure there's even EDM acts potentially, uh, you know, at they're like, no, now or, or, or maybe <laughs> no, not, not. I don't, I don't know, know that, but maybe speak to that, the music evolving and how you guys kind of made those decisions. One of, the, one of the great things I think about starting the brand, I think for me personally too, coming out of hard rock, you know, I used to do all the music for the hard rocks at this while I was growing my my management career, and so the blues, I, I was just, it was just a little bit out of reach, you know, for me musically uh, at the time. Uh, but then when you start to dig in, and you you know, we we started to live by the whole uh, Willie Dixon line of blues is the roots and everything else is the fruit, mm. you know, and that started to that allowed us to sort of bridge the gap from. Mm. You know, from uh, uh, Buddy Guy to B-52s to whoever the contemporary artists were, you know. And I, and I think the other thing that, um, and I'm not sure I'm exactly answering your question here, but once we got into live music, we were committed to having great showrooms with great sound and great backstages and really taking care of the artists. And uh, 
Uh, you know, at the time when we started, it was a lot of fiefdoms of, you know, independence all over the country. And uh, at the end of the day, there wasn't a lot of competition and guys were, weren't necessarily treated well when they came into town. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we wanted to be the antidote. We wanted to be, for the bands that were touring, we wanted them to look on their calendar and go, oh, fuck, that's so great. I'm playing House of Blues New thank Orleans. Thank God. Yeah, yeah thank, thank God. God. You know, oh, oh, Sunset, that's going to be awesome. Yeah. You know? and, and, uh, and I think for the first... 10 years or so that really was what it was you know and and people loved our food oh i'm eating jambalaya instead of uh you know instead of deli trays you know yeah um over time then like anybody else though oh no no more no more jambalaya backstage you know we've we've (laughs) eaten it for five years on the road at house of blues you know but um but i think uh sort of trying to circle back i guess the um once we we were always a uh, quality ori- oriented organization, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're going to do it, we want to be the best at it. And so whether it was music or food, those were always the, the pushes within the business. Well, so was the original goal when you guys started in Cambridge was, was to have a certain number of venues across the country? Cause obviously you guys raised a certain amount of money. So you knew, you knew that you were going certain places, but did you, know that the growth of the brand was always going to be like, hey, we're going to be a venue that you recognize in, you know, a dozen different major markets? Um, Or was the initial goal kind of smaller than that and expanded organically? How did that ebb and flow to where we are today? It's a little bit of both. You know, I mean, I think there was an idea that we were going to try to get six, seven, eight open and then go public. That was Mm. sort of the original idea. Uh, And then over time that, that evolved based on necessity and opportunity. You know, because sometimes, you know, we, we had situations where we didn't have any money. And then we had people who wanted us and were willing to, to pay to bring us. So, um, so like we ended up in Cleveland. That was never on anybody's drawing board. But at the time, you know, we hadn't grown in a little bit. And here was somebody coming to bring us a really good deal. Yeah. I think that worked for us and worked for them. So um, it was a very fluid process. And we were also on the cutting edge in so many different directions. You know, we were the first organization to put live music on the Internet. We had a, a little Richard uh, event that we did with our Blue Schoolhouse, and then we, oh. later we had a Stevie Wonder uh, uh, performance also from Sunset. You, you know, guys streamed it. We streamed it, yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't so even know that. That's Isaac cool. at one point had the, uh, the vision, and, and again, this is, as you can imagine, the technology was pretty rudimentary at the time, <laughs> but you know, the goal was, hey, if somebody wants to hear the Neville Brothers live in New Orleans sitting in Tokyo, you know, that they can dial it up on the internet, pay $5, and, you know, and, and they get this exact show um you know he was he was out in front in terms of doing it mm. and i think you know live music from a performance point is still not quite clicking on the internet and right. on television it still doesn't work to yet. this day to this day yeah you know but we were one of the first ones to put our toes in the water and take a crack at it and uh it was it was it's pretty pretty amazing really when you think about it I'm trying to chart the calendar of, of your guys' growth, too. And I, I read something. Did Disney end up investing in, in yeah. that? It was one of those cash windfalls, I'm assuming? Yeah. Disney uh, Disney was part of the original investment crew. Oh, okay. Uh, they came in with Harvard, um, you know, and they wanted, uh, they wanted us in Orlando, and they wanted us in Anaheim at the time. So were there, like, a lot of – did it feel like there was a lot of cooks in, like, the corporate kitchen at, at House of Blues <laughs> at that time? Because eventually Isaac – the founder, one of the founders, essentially left the company. Yeah, he got tossed out. So what? Let's dig into that because I have no. There's not a lot written about it. There, yeah, the, I mean the the real story. We uh, you know we we went live uh, 
we were open at the point in Boston, New Orleans, and Los Angeles. Okay. And, and the venues were making eh, probably about four or five million dollars. Wow. You know, now our, our overhead at the time also was probably four or five million dollars. Four or five million dollars, <laughs> maybe a little bit more than that. You know, but we were also, but everybody understood that, and that was part of the game. Because we also started like a sports division, we had an internet division. Mm-hmm. Like Isaac saw the marriage of of artists and athletes, you know, really early on with media. And uh, so anyway, so we had all these things going on, and Isaac, uh, because the building, the businesses were healthy. You know, the goal was to try to uh, uh, yeah. take it public during the Atlanta Olympics. So we built a temporary uh, site, uh, House of Blues, for the Atlanta Olympics, and uh, <sighs> and. It was a major success from a marketing perspective. Yeah, you know that was the year McDonald's Arch Deluxe uh, was launched, and it was the number one media campaign. And they spent seventy-seven million dollars, and uh, and we did the our brand, you know, the House of Blues uh, for the Olympics, and it was the second best campaign that year. And we only lost twenty-seven million dollars uh, oh, in the wow. venture. Uh, so it was kind of one of those things. The the market dropped, you know, in the middle of the Olympics. And uh, we couldn't go public, and then all of a sudden we had this, you know, overrun in Atlanta. You know, we weren't as successful as we thought. the The club side of it was huge, uh, and we did a barbecue sort of uh, business out under this tent in a parking lot. It was fairly successful, but the other part of the business was built on selling, you know, ten million dollars of T-shirts that ended up locked up and with somebody who went bankrupt. Oh, no. And we also thought we'd be doing a thousand gospel brunches you know thousand uh, people a day for gospel brunch and, and that nobody cared either. that didn't work either oh no so at the time we were also under construction in chicago and chicago uh, went 10 million dollars over budget so we had a you know somewhere in the neighborhood of a 25 to 30 million dollar shortfall you know which was not budgeted not planned for and if we'd gone public could have accommodated it right but we didn't go public so now we've got a 25 million dollar problem and uh, we have, you know, we have three businesses that make five million dollars a year. So that's rough. So, uh, so Isaac kind of became the, the yes. scapegoat for like this was under his uh, well, tutelage, if he, you will. So this was his direction. His, yeah, he pushed all his chips forward. It was under his direction. He pledged his stock in the company. You know, to Atlanta was going to work. And if we hadn't done brunch, you know, we it would have worked. You know, because we spent probably ten million dollars to build a tent for this whole gospel program. Uh. Um. And uh, anyway, um, where was I going? You were so yeah. Tell us how you well how the hole gets filled, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. So another round of investment then goes out. You know, we finished Chicago and that money. Uh, Disney, I think. I think Disney came in then because that's when they wanted Anaheim and they wanted Orlando. Uh, so Disney comes in and uh, Isaac's on press junkets and he's getting you know he's beat up and angry. And uh, he starts in these press junkets saying, oh, Michael Eisner's the devil. Rupert Murdoch's the devil. Ooh. You know, no. I'd say, you know, about nine months later, he's yeah. tossed out, you know. Oh, my gosh. So uh, it wasn't his it wasn't his call to leave. He didn't it was not to... his call to leave. No. Yikes. So it, you've been in the Mike, you've been in the organization a long time. There's obviously when you lose kind of a creative director or a co-founder that has led that vision for so long what was the what was the process to kind of reestablish a vision that made sense um at least from the creative side because i i mean we've now talked about isaac for probably 15 minutes of this pod so far you know talking about the connectivity of big ideas and and maybe not all of them working but being a big driving factor for those to bring those ideas into fruition was it 
next man up, you know, and just kind of figuring out, or did we have? To, did you have to kind of pull talent in to to fill those very big shoes with multiple people? How did that work once he was uh, kicked out um, of the organization? I think. He- there are a lot of good people, smart people, talented people uh, all through the organization. At this point, we're probably employing, I don't know, three, 4,000 people. Wow. Uh, so, you know, we're still pretty good sized. And, and the people who were in charge were really good, smart, nice people. So there wasn't any sort of new ideas, but it was a continued execution. Get rid of some of the small stuff. You know, we had a record label that had mm-hmm. won a bunch of Grammys, but, you know, it was blues-related uh, music or blues inspired. Uh, so they got rid of things like that. The media company, you know, went away. Uh, we hunkered down kind of more on the core business. So I think that that was good. Uh, for me, I'd always, from the beginning, you know, uh, both from Hard Rock and, and then House of Blues, you know, for me, I was I always felt like, you know, I was uh, John the Baptist to, you know, Isaac's Jesus, you know. Um, and so when I was like the second call, I think, uh, after they, you know, said that Isaac was out. And that was really hard. And I'd talk to Isaac after, you know, should I quit? What do I do? And he said, no, kid, you know, you, you need to stay. Do your thing. You know, they need you. And um, and for me then, it became the realization of, you know, Buddhism has lived through many Buddhas, Christianity, survive without Christ. You know, the the list goes on and on of, of major leaders who are no longer part of their tribe or, or part of their vision, you know. So, for me, then it became even that much more about sort of the mission, you know, and the mission statement, you know, and um, so yeah, so it was easy to, uh, it, it wasn't easy to heal the wound, but it also was like easy to continue the mission, if that makes sense. What parts of it do you feel are like so successfully completing that mission right now that Isaac set out? Because again, you were that beacon for him at yeah. that point, and. I think we're still a great place to work. I think we, you know, I think uh, Michael Rapino now, you know, with Live Nation over overseeing it and Ron Bensian, you know, running uh, clubs and theaters specifically. I mm-hmm. think, you know, we do a great job of taking care of people. We do a great job of training people. Uh, I think we're really a great place to work at the end of the day. And I still think we, you know, we're committed to a great product, you know, and the product's evolved over time. And, um, but it's the, the fundamental roots are still the same and the mission statement's still the same. Yeah. Going back to, uh, you know, you guys are raising a, another round um, with Disney involved to potentially bring the new locations to <clears throat> Anaheim and Orlando. When you guys are doing the P&Ls of that raise, how much is revenue coming from the food side of the business and your projections? And how much is it from the bar and how much is it from the ticketing side and and obviously you don't have to like give specific numbers but i'm kind of thinking about rough percentages and, and mm-hmm. where i'm going with this is obviously this food beast food podcast foods of in all of your venues and i'm it was it kind of always like a secondary tactic we're going to feed people when they're here for the show but i also know that the restaurants are open every day kind of regardless where you have a show or not which is I mean, it takes a level of investment and manpower to run these big restaurant venues outside of the music venue. So I'm curious about what the strategy was at that time um, for the restaurants to be like how big uh, of that business. Well, it changes a little bit market to market. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're on Disney property, that's one thing. If you're in downtown Cleveland, that's another, you know. So I think, uh, but I, I... 
you know, I would say, you know, the idea was always food was somewhere between, you know, 30 and 45% or the restaurant, you know, and the, and the food component was somewhere between 35 and 50, 55% of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it also shows up in different ways for us at a house of blues, right? We've got the restaurant food sales in the restaurant. We've got food sales in the club. It's different, mm-hmm. you know, but it's still food sales. And then we were, we're big in special events. So food isn't an integral part of every special event, corporate entertainment that happens in the building. So I think, you know, we, we don't survive without food. We're not House of Blues without food. Right. To me. Yeah, you guys were my high school grad night, so thank you. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, fantastic catering there. I, I wanted to ask you guys a question since you've been it. to House of Blues a few times throughout your lives. When did you realize that we actually had restaurants? Because I think there's a lot of people out there that don't understand that we're like full service Full well, steam ahead. The the location I'm most familiar with used to be at, at Downtown Disney and now is over at the Garden Walk. So in Anaheim, every time you walk by it, you see the really sweet bar and diners sitting outside. So for me, it was pretty easy to click. Like it, To me, it looked like a restaurant first, right? And then you just happen to be invited or go to some shows at night and then you realize, oh, this is a restaurant that has a cool music venue. Right. So that was my experience. Jeff, yours might be different, but... Yeah, I think it's similar and I think kind of have a question back is, you know, when I'm at the House of Blues and, uh, you know, I'm 500 people deep in a line to get inside the venue, I also understand that the restaurant's getting mobbed, right? Because it's... You guys have sold, at least at the new House of Blues Anaheim, I think... 2200 seats that's right so you know there's 2000 people in the area potentially trying to grab a bite and a drink before they go into the venue and prep for that i'm like trying to think about if i'm in the back of house of that restaurant and it's a tuesday and it's a sold out show and it's wednesday then there isn't a show at all and the ebbs and flows that happen with your restaurant more than almost any other because Again, I'm making an assumption, but I'm I'm assuming that the traffic on sold out concert days is very different than an average Wednesday night if there is no concert. Certainly, how do you guys kind of plan for that? Um, because that I don't know that workflow seems pretty pretty crazy on my end. Yeah, I, I, I've been managing for well over a decade, but strictly restaurants so this our our concept is so unique and you're totally right we have to invest a lot of time in looking at prior show data and seeing what kind of return we got coming into the restaurant so our forecasting and scheduling takes up quite a few hours every week to try and plan for that because two to three hours before a sold out show yeah it's it's hitting heavy and we have to make sure all hands are on deck to provide a great experience you got any like weird data on what people eat based on who's performing? Like if I if totally people at a Snoop Dogg show, do they eat different than the people at like, I don't know, a Blink-182 show? Yeah, uh, 100%. And, and you did bring up EDM before. Yeah. Not too much food selling on those nights. Yeah, so you guys way. don't book them. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> no, no we still do, do great shows. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we do. Yeah. We do, but the restaurant doesn't seem to get too much of a hit with that. Mm. But yeah, absolutely, the demographic and the, and the genre of the music, it does influence what we would focus on and, and prep more of mm. for, for certain type shows. Uh, same thing with, with cocktails. We'll do specific for, for genres. Like we were talking earlier before we got on here, like yeah. country shows, 
Yeah, what's have, it, what are they drinking at a country show? Well, we have a new frozen drink program in our uh, music halls. Okay. So kind of like slushies, but with booze. It's really yeah. cool. So we'll do like a Jack and Coke frozen for that. But if, if Snoop Dogg's in the house, we'll probably do a Tito's Frosé okay. or something. <laughs> That's or, fascinating. Or, or I actually I actually even created a gin and juice recipe too for the Damn, first drink. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Cause that's that's so unique to you guys. Like yeah. no other restaurant does the menu kind of almost get influenced by the the talent that's coming through. Cause yep. they're they're just focused on they're gonna change it based on the food, maybe what's trending at that moment. But you guys have the opportunity to sell different things based on the big names that could come through. So that's 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 kind of hard to prep for too. I'm assuming like all right, cool. Last time Snoop was in town, this drink flew off the shelves people didn't eat this but they ate that yep that's that's so curious and does the menu change at all from like location to location across the country uh we we do have core restaurant menus Mm -hmm. um but some of the other rooms like our foundation rooms we have different um different menus throughout the country and we'll do like limited time offers every every once in a while what's this Uh, foundation room you guys speak of I'm going to let Mike take that one. Yeah, I've sure. heard, I've heard yeah. about this, but I don't exactly know what it is. And I feel like we've mentioned it a few times. We just tell people at home what it is. We, we got to get you guys in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a uh, it's a membership club that also supports our nonprofit. We have a Music Forward Foundation. Okay. And uh, anyway, the, the foundation rooms, uh, it's sort of a Maharaja's Palace meets a New Orleans bordello kind of thing. It's <laughs> very really high end. And it was originally inspired by Isaac's train car. Isaac also used to travel around in a train car uh, huh. for a long time time and and that was like a wild wild west uh the you know uh train car meets a maharaja's palace so uh you know isaac uh very eclectic cat and he took a lot of what he saw in india and brought it to the created this foundation room with the idea of supporting a nonprofit. but for people who wanted more and could pay more we wanted to give them something and i think you know as chef was referring to earlier uh you know with the foundation rooms they tend to be more uh chef driven businesses as opposed to the house of blues which is a little more core core menu items uh supplemented by you know regional uh opportunities mm-hmm. you know the foundation room is totally chefs you know what does this chef want in this market oh wow yeah because there's uh there seems to be i mean with the amount of menus that you guys have uh from the private event side to what you can get at lunch or dinner kind of inside the restaurant or in the foundation room man i i remember stopping by the house of blue the new house of blues anaheim and i looked at like the seven different menus that were kind of in front of me as i was getting an introduction and i was i was pretty flabbergasted of like how how much work would just have to go into keeping these menus updated and then this was just like a single location so Tell me about the process of trying to keep that menu contemporary because what Eli and I know at Food Beast is with the younger and evolving demographic of restaurant goer is they've seen basically everything. Um, mostly they've probably seen it on Instagram in some form or fashion. And whether that's food from New York or Milan or Los Angeles or wherever, and a lot of restaurants, no matter where you are in the country now have to compete with that theoretical restaurant in someone's head. And when you guys have four rooms and seven menus, 11 locations, like, 
my mind is blown because I don't even understand what those processes are like. But when you guys to for this diatribe to actually end in a question, when you guys are trying to introduce a new menu item, what's your process like? Um, especially for a core menu item that's potentially going to be unveiled across all your locations. Sure. Well, we, we certainly try to stick to our roots, Southern inspired cuisine, but obviously we're, we're in business too. So we need to see what's moving and what's not. So every month we'll run uh, product mixes, see what's hot, what's not. Uh, we do basically a major change on the core menu, probably once a year. Hmm. But we have the flexibility to make minor tweaks and edits w whenever we really need to. So, yeah, so we stick with our smoked meats, uh, some of the old classic Southerns like jambalaya, shrimp and grits and whatnot. But, you know, last year, mid last year, we saw Impossible Burger was taken off. So we're like, hey, let's jump on this, threw it on the menu and it's it's going crazy. And now you see like Burger King and all these other places have it. So we we were, we kind of pioneered that a little bit too and got it out there with our big name so is that the most interesting menu item you think you've added recently or if not what is the thing you're most excited about that you've added probably in the last year to the um menu? that's definitely the most different i would say mm -hmm. it's a completely vegan product not just the the patty itself but we create our own vegan secret sauce and we got a vegan bun and vegan cheese so oh, wow. and you need to have those options for the people out there in the world right because everybody has different tastes and flavors one of our mottos is uh unity and diversity so yeah. that doesn't apply just to music and the different genres but also what we offer on our menu you does guys it, does it kind of blow your mind that uh the vegan burger is like one of your top performers over the past like year or two like five years ago would you have ever thought that that could be like leading on a sales report no. or, is, or is that how fast the contemporary consumer is kind of evolving and shifting yeah i, I think it's all the focus that's on it like you see it all over the place with social media and whatnot and social media i think drives a lot of people's decisions right now mm -hmm. and so we just try and stick with that and make sure we have offerings for everybody that's crazy speaking of options like is there weird requests from artists that you guys get either over the <laughs> years or recently and what what are those things yeah i i don't specifically deal with a green room um, but yeah, we do have a separate menu for, for green room as well, mm. but the production crews will definitely get some requests from, from artists and yeah. Is that oh yeah. We, we, I mean, Marilyn Manson wants the dressing room at 58 degrees. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, I didn't know if you were going to bring them up. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me know. more about Marilyn Manson's requests. <laughs> Morrissey, you know, there's no leather to be seen anywhere. Uh, you know, I think that with the pretenders, uh, Chrissy Hind, you know, doesn't want smell of she doesn't want anything to do with meat anywhere huh. you know in the space you know and 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 but i think that that that's really good at the end of the day i think because again it sort of challenges our thinking and it also i think uh it challenges just on an execution level but it also sort of challenges it on a, at a spiritual heartfelt level too you know uh, so i think some of that stuff's pretty cool yeah it keeps you guys a little bit artist driven and yeah. even as you grow right like the ability that kind of small small venture small clubs might might have a little bit more flexibility to do because they have to they have to take care of their artists at that point but i could see other venues as it grows it's like kind of throw it by the wayside but you guys almost accepting that challenge like, yeah what do you guys want what could we cook you up so there's a green room menu oh yeah it's different i've yeah. never performed so i don't have no idea what that looks let's like let's get you guys on the stage let's do this live <laughs> we should do this live that's funny 
Um, tell me, is there is it true that under every stage at House of Blues, there's yeah. like a metal box yeah. filled with, is it mud? Yeah, no. Mississippi mud. Yeah, from the what? Delta. Robert Why? Johnson, have you heard of him? No. Oh, classic. Get, get, Michael, give this man an education. Learn me, <laughs> no, learn me. Literally, I don't. Hey, I'm representing everyone at home has di- knows diddly squat about music. So, fair enough. Here we so, go. So, Robert Johnson uh, is largely largely uh, regarded as the the father of the blues. Uh, you know, he uh, was a struggling, you know, guitar player, womanizer, you know, whatever. Okay. Uh, and he ultimately went to the crossroads, uh, 61 and 49, uh, got down on his knees, prayed to the devil, you know, please give me a, a career. And and he had a, a meteoric career from then. He was, I, I don't think he lasted more than three years before he was, I think he was poisoned by a, you know, a, a jealous husband sort of situation, you know, but in those some odd years, you know, he, he wrote, crossroads and a bunch of the other stuff that you know he's famous for people should look him up but you know clapton's covered him people continue to cover robert johnson you know john mayer um all kinds of folks um but anyway but he he was uh seen as the the father of the blues and the delta is seen as sort of the the homeland uh of the blues so isaac you know really wanted uh he wanted he he was a big believer in authenticity whether it was food or the art or the music you know he wanted it to be be real and so uh we put mississippi mud under every stage as a just sort of a a, an homage i guess to the to the south or or uh something to help you know kind of bring that mojo uh to the stages are there any other quirks like that within all the locations that people might have missed or how they know about that one of the greatest things this is this is uh, not a necessarily well-known house of blues story but uh, when we're building sunset uh, isaac's father isaac sent him on a mission he wanted to buy the tin from the building uh right at the crossroads it was an old warehouse there so isaac's father went and comes back isaac isaac i got i got the tin and isaac's looking at it it's kind of newish and he's like where did you get it? And uh, he goes, I got the highway, highway uh, 61 and, um, it, you know, 149, you know, the, 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 uh, I can't remember the name, but you know how some, some highways have little offshoots that right. are like the yeah. industrial corridor yeah. version of that. Yeah. So, uh, so he bought the wrong tin and, <laughs> uh, and so he had to go back. Isaac sent him back to buy the right tin to put up on the building. But at this point now, everybody in Clarksdale or, where it was in Mississippi knew that there's some idiot coming buying <laughs> warehouse tin. So what he paid 10 grand for the first time, they paid like $75,000 for oh, no. the second time. And he still had to put tin on the existing buildings, right? We couldn't just take the tin and leave it. So the deal was that we would replace your tin. But, uh, but that tin was all over uh, the original, you know, house of blues on sunset strip. That old beat up tin that you saw was literally from the, the warehouse uh, where, Robert Johnson allegedly, you know, got on his knees and and prayed to the devil for a career. Uh, can we talk about the Sunset Strip a little bit because that was, uh, I mean, that was a location near and dear to a lot of Angelinos, right? Um, for those that aren't from Los Angeles, the House of Blue Sunset Strip is on a strip of iconic venues um, on Sunset in Hollywood. And, you know, there were a lot of people sad about that location kind of being closed. What was what was the situation that kind of led to that decision being made? And and how does that kind of sit with you now? Um, you know, just because it feels like Los Angeles and Hollywood is in some ways the heart 
um, and soul of at least part of the music industry. And you guys had a presence there for a long time, and 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 now and now you don't. So I'm curious about how you what that situation was, and and how you f- and how you feel about it now. Mm. Well, in '94 when we opened, you know, the strip was kind of dead. You know, so this was a major revitalization of Sunset Strip at the time. Because um, like the whiskey and, you know, some of the other clubs down the street, they were still doing their thing, but they weren't getting that, you know, here's the next Van Halen. You know, it was more, it just wasn't, it wasn't happening, you know. And so uh, when we opened, it became a really big deal. And I think, again, for Isaac, that's where we became an international company. Mm. You know, we were, we were open in Boston with a little shop. People were interested, but it wasn't that big big a deal. New Orleans, we're starting, people are noticing. But Los Angeles, as one of the top cities on the planet, you know, all of a sudden it seemed like we were an international overnight brand just because we opened in Los Angeles. Um, so, you know, it had an epic run. Every artist that was worth anything played on that stage. You know, Springsteen, Elton John, Sting, John Legend, Kanye, Jay-Z. You know, the list goes on and on of, of artists and unique collaborations and we even had a TV show back in those days too, live from the House of Blues that we did with Turner Broadcasting. That was one of their more successful programs. Um, so it was like super cool and happening. Uh, and then over time, you know, probably 10, 12, 14 years into it, uh, there was a, you know, the, the, the people who followed Isaac, you know, kind of looking for a sale. I think some of the investors were starting to push. And so we went probably eight years on Sunset where we really didn't invest any money. We really didn't change. Mm. You know, and then uh, the landlords in the deal we wrote, even back in the beginning, had the ability to buy us out for like eighteen million dollars, and uh, and they chose to execute the buyout. So that was kind of ah. So there was a little bit for me, you know, as sort of a purist that we sort of had stopped trying for a little bit. So you know, it's time. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. kind of how it felt. It wasn't Live Nation's fault, you know. What I mean, this is old House of Blues, you know, pre Live Nation. Um. But, uh, yeah, but I think through a series of events and competition changed, right? Like, you know, we had a 12-year run where we were setting the setting the pace. And then all of a sudden now everybody's, you know, Golden Voice is getting much more active. Sure. And there's a lot more competition, Fonda, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I think it's, you know, it's an opportunity for us to come back and reinvent ourselves again, which I think is, is a great thing. Is that something that House of Blues is actively looking at coming back to Los Angeles and – uh, or is, it, is that something that you would be excited about? Uh, yeah, I'd definitely be excited about it. And we're definitely, we've been looking ever since, you know, and even before, you know, the, the, before it went down, we were, we were looking, I think it's hard for us, as you can imagine, it's hard enough to open a restaurant with all the permitting and all the different licenses you have to have. But then when you throw in live music, recorded music, dancing, you know, all the other permits and licenses that we have to have parking, you know, the, mm-hmm. for assembly like that uh it's really hard you know and then to make the numbers work is is a challenge too as as i mentioned you know we spent seven million dollars in new orleans in 1994 you know and sunset was crazy at the time at i think we spent 16 or 18 million dollars but now to do something like that now 40 50 million dollars so the the economics of these projects are different now yeah you You have so much of you tied up into the house of blues brand i feel and everything that you've done what if you had to give me like, what's what's the lowest you felt, and what's like the peak kind of euphoric? Oh shit, this is awesome. This is working. This is a brand that I have such a foundation in, and people recognize it. You know that's got to be incredible. And being able to step back and 
feel both of those moments on both those ends. I'm curious if off the top of your head you remember any of those. Oh moments. yeah, I think um, you know one one of my one of my favorite moments. Uh, it just kind of showed how powerful even then the brand was uh, when Princess Di was killed, and then shortly thereafter Versace was killed. You know, Elton John was supposed to do uh, a show uh, for V8 or for MTV at the time when they were doing sort of the unplugged stuff. And, yeah. And so anyway, long story short, this was his first public performance was at House of Blues New Orleans post that. And that's when he first debuted Candle in the Wind, uh, but mm. with more of the Maryland. It just took on a whole nother level of relevance, yeah. I think, um, when that happened. So there's been more than a few times where I just felt like I was in the presence of magic you know with the brand yeah you know i think um that was definitely one of them though and then there's a dolly parton show one time that was just it blew my mind because her audience ranged from you know upper yuppie you know kind of folks to you know trailer folks to cross-gender lgbtq audience like it was the most diverse audience i've ever seen and it was dolly parton that brought them out i thought that was amazing um you know johnny cash before he passed, played the House of Blueses a couple times. You know, uh, there's a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm trying to think the low low points, though. Probably Isaac being fired was probably the lowest, I think. I can't imagine anything I felt than, anything lower than that. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard when you see a friend and, you know. Yeah, he was my hero, my mentor. You know, I feel like I owe my career to him, you know, and he was the right guy to take a goofy kid like me and, <laughs> you know, find out that I actually was good at something. You know, I didn't know what I – I had no idea. I didn't learn till later in life that I was a creative person. I just thought I couldn't draw a hand to scale. I'm not I'm not an artist. I'm not creative. <laughs> but you find with House of Blues, I think that was the other great lesson with House of Blues was outsider art. You know, this idea that people created for the sheer joy of creating, you know. Uh, Howard Finster, uh, he did one of the Talking Heads records with all the sort of really dynamic, small, integrated or I can't remember which album it was, but anyway, he said that God spoke to him in his thumb. One day God he looked at his thumb and God was talking to him and said, you need to be creating. And, you know, and, and then finding out that create, being creative is not, again, not being able to draw. You don't have to be able to draw an apple yeah. to scale or color to be creative. That all these things are prone to interpretation, you know, and creativity is that sort of fusion of what is and what could be, I think. And uh, uh, so anyway, so I think those were like great lessons that, really inspired me for the rest of my career yeah. michael how are you using the how are you using that creativity in the projects that you're involved in and now um i i think i'm always in search of how to hang out better uh, you know i feel like i've been paid to hang out my entire career you know? <laughs> and, and we get to work with some of the best uh best ingredients for hanging out food booze music and people Hell yeah. you know yeah. the only thing you're missing is sex and, <laughs> and how do you get there food booze music and people you know so uh so i think you know I, so in terms of now you know uh, I'm, I'm very clear that you know there are people who pay more for a better product so we have to figure out what that is um, I think, you know, in terms of our rooms and how people enjoy them, you know, it's really important that you can see, you can hear, you know, you can get to a bathroom, you can get to a bar. Uh, so I think the design of clubs, you know, and, and how we integrate, you know, premium experiences into the clubs themselves, you know, is really important. And then it, and then it can't be about the money. The money's, Isaac said early on at Hard Rock, you know, money is a byproduct of doing something you love well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I try to, focus on that and so far it's worked really well from a business standpoint for me career-wise um 
because I, I take pride in our results, you know, but it still comes down to what's the interaction, what happens at the front door, what happens when you bump into somebody asking for where the bathroom is, yeah. you know, I think there's still magic in the human interaction. I could have misheard, but before we started the podcast, was there was there any sort of tie to cannabis early on, or what, what, what was that like? What what is that? Story? Isaac Isaac was a, a big fan of cannabis. Okay, uh, you know, so yeah, there's a, yeah, so there's a lot <laughs> yeah, of on. great great opportunities to really get creative and get out of your mind, and yeah. uh, even with even the early days, there was always these magic moments. You know, when we opened in Chicago. Uh, we had used the Sacred Heart. We had, we had uh, an evolved version of the Sacred Heart was the House of Blues logo, and mm. uh, and Cardinal Bernardin, who was the you know the revered cardinal in Chicago at the time, was asking uh, uh, Catholics to boycott the future opening of uh, of the House of Blues for our blasphemous logo. <sighs> And uh, so this was big news, you know, went on for two weeks, you know, and, and Isaac had met with him and said, I'm, I'm not changing my logo until my Swami tells me to. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so for two weeks while we're opening and we're in the middle of training all of our staff, we're going through this whole, uh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Are we going to change our logo? Are we changing our name? What are we doing? What are we doing? And we're like, no, no, no. Let's learn about the French fries right now. This is a spice that, you know, we, we put sea salt and black pepper and a touch of this, you know, into our seasoning. That's what you need to learn. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, myself and Joe Marcus at the time, who's our uh, executive chef and uh, very talented guy in his own right. Uh, anyway, we had just finished a training session and we went into the bowels of the building just walking around and we run into Isaac. And Isaac is very, you know, always in black, you know, big guy, piercing blue eyes, beard, you know. And uh, he rolls his big fatty and, uh, and he says, here, kids, take a hit of this, you know. So, you know, we take a hit, a couple hits, you know, and he's telling us, uh, I just came from meditation and Sai Baba visited me. And, and uh, he said that, the, uh, that uh, he brought this little chubby Arab with him and he said, this is Jesus. You know, he's not, he's not the white Anglo skinny guy that you, you know, that you've been told. And, and Jesus told him and uh, Isaac in the meditation that they got my message wrong and it's not about retribution. It's, uh, you know, it's about forgiveness and, um, and empathy. And, uh, but in that moment, then Jesus waved his hands over the, the logo, which was in his meditation and the heart healed and the barbed wire fell away, you know, and, uh, and that became our new logo. And, uh, so in the meantime, myself and Joe were puffing away with him. <laughs> so our eyes are getting bigger, you know, and, and he's just sort of blowing our minds here. And he says, okay, kids, now you go tell everybody else. You know, so we go running back upstairs to the end of this uh, this uh, meal where we're, you know we're practicing running the restaurant, right? High as shit, high as shit, <laughs> munchies, munchies. That's exactly what happened. So I'm standing there, I'm going, we just came from, you know, talking with Isaac, and he told us you know, the logo, the Jesus healed it. And I'm you know going through this whole thing. And you imagine there's the story's a lot longer because I can remember all that, you know. Then, but then all of a sudden I was like, hey, is that? chocolate cake over there <laughs> bring, bring a little chocolate cake over here let me tell the rest of the story in a, with a fork full of chocolate cake in my mouth but uh anyway but isaac was uh, yes he was always uh he, he was a he was an early uh early adopter of early the adopter thing. of the whole thing yeah wait so did the logo actually change the logo actually changed right then and there dang thank you weed <laughs> yeah yeah through the power of marijuana and meditation mike there's a there's a lot of activity in the music festival world that's happening. Um, you you know, guys are in it now. And, you know, so we're, we're potentially in it uh, <laughs> this coming September. But 
uh, bringing people to outdoor spaces, um, bringing people to places you might never even visit outside um, major city centers. So there's a lot of happening like kind of outside the venue. I'm kind of curious about your excitement level for venues over the next decade, knowing that there's, yeah, this kind of festival circuit that's kind at the very least kind of taken me by surprise of how big it's gotten and and how excited people are for not only the Coachellas of the world, but like the, you know, the Bottle Rocks and the Caboos and the et cetera, et cetera. Um, and obviously, you know, those experiences tend to be like large square footage that's huge production value. They're, they're booking all sorts of talent. Um, I personally feel that there's always going to be a place for a venue um but uh, w- what are your thoughts on the current landscape and and how's house of blues going to evolve to kind of meet that consumer need well i think there's always I don't, I don't think the clubs are going anywhere you know i think uh i think the idea that people always are still into discovery and and still want to see live you know i think for the same reason that live music hasn't translated you know into any other medium it's yeah still the reason why the clubs will always be valuable right and you know so many of the festivals are driven by the time of the year and the weather that you can expect that time of the year and there's only so many weekends and all that kind of stuff but the the clubs i think will continue to matter i think for us it's a little bit of a challenge too we have to evolve with the clubs you know and and we've got to continue to find ways to gather people um so you know i think as our as our marketing continues to evolve and our, our type of entertainments that we put in the clubs continue to evolve, we just have to become better at marketing. You know, if somebody wants to watch people throw hatchets, you know, we got to be the kind of <laughs> the kind of organization that can find 250 people to come out and support hatchet throwing. You know, I think that's, you know, that's kind of where everything is, is going in my mind. We were jabbering uh, about this earlier when I was trying, I was asking Jeff a little bit about the foundation room because I know he's he's taking a peek at the one in Anaheim and was like, yo, this shit's the coolest shit ever. And he was telling me a little bit about the model. And I was like, is there a model in the future for venues like House of Blues to kind of create some sort of pass that like like an annual pass, something like, you know, I pay oh, for yeah, a year and I just get access to X amount of shows the way that like mm-hmm. AMCs and movie theaters are doing. Like, is that... Cross yeah. the past. That's something you guys are doing. I don't even know of. Is yeah, that- we we have a membership uh, for the foundation rooms. We also do ticket banks, is what we call them. You huh. know, for people who want to go to a bunch of shows, you know, and, and would like some sort of you know preferred treatment and preferred access. So you know, we definitely are in that. So that's in that game. It's happening. Yeah, it's been happening for a while for us. Dang, that's how that's how out of it I am. Nah, <laughs> you're busy, man. You're building a brand. Oh, that's fun. Do you when? When you're looking at new cities or potential the plants of of new venues, what are the three or four dominoes that you're looking for now um, that makes a potential project feasible? I know before before we hit record, you had mentioned having some excitement about a project you're working in Sacramento, but I'm just curious about what you're seeing now, what the dominoes are now for you know, a level of planning, investment, execution to happen, um, you know, in this current landscape? Well, it's a, it's, it's a series of variables that depending, you know, kind of they change their own level of value, I think. Um, you know, it's what's the competitive landscape? 
There's no point in opening a, a thousand capacity club in a market that already has a club that holds twelve or thirteen hundred, right? Mm. Because at the end of the day, you know, we, we will always be able to hustle and scrap for some shows, but a, built, a larger building can offer a bigger guarantee because they have more people they're selling tickets to. Um, so we look for a competitive spot. Uh, if it's a house of blues, you know, we're looking for foot traffic, you know, to make sure it's easier for the restaurant, you know, because people will go anywhere for live music, but they may not drive 35, 50 minutes, you know, for a restaurant in this day and age. So um, I think there's that sort of happy medium of how many people are in the immediate vicinity. Uh, and then coupled with what's the size of the club, you know, and then what it what's going on in the, the immediate area around it? You know, can we have, do we have enough parking? Is there public transportation? So um, I think it's a combination of competitive opportunity, foot traffic and, um, and just convenience for the, for the consumer. Because in the, in the food world um, we've definitely seen something kind of take hold where a decade ago, if you're doing a road trip across the country and you kind of drove into um, any town, 25,000 to 50,000 people, uh, your dining options were pretty limited um, versus now there's craft food almost everywhere you go because people know more, they're doing more. And again, like I can, I feel like I can go into a town with 10,000 people or less. And if they have a main street, there's a chef somewhere doing something pretty cool is music and venues is that is that something that can be democratized to like smaller population centers um or is your model has to be built kind of in specific metropolitans with certain concentrations of people and and you had just mentioned kind of like walk through traffic but you know so we've kind of watched this kind of democratization of food and i'm wondering like it seems like to me with these younger generations, like live music is just as important as it is to the millennial, our generation, mm -hmm. as it was to Gen X, as it was to baby boomers. And so, I don't know, is there is there more, is there an opportunity for more music is my question mm. um, based on what you're seeing? Or are there enough venues across the world that there really shouldn't be that many more when you talk about like Cincinnati or Cleveland or Sacramento, like do the venues kind of all exist and there shouldn't be that much more investment. Are you talking you like, think? how do you get house of blues itself? Cause there's venues in these other sure. smaller towns, but like, how do you get like the house of blues experience you're saying sure. in, these, in these smaller towns that may not have a downtown Disney or a Disney Springs with all that massive foot traffic like how does someone in i don't know like rural minnesota like get a really dope house of blues experience that what you're asking or, like, well i mean about? i'm just it's more of a bigger question i think about mu like the excitement of the music business in general because i think what we do know is on the artist side like live music is kind of the way you pay your bills so and as mike as you've kind of already mentioned uh you know there's uh, people will come to watch live music no matter what's playing on Palladium and MTV and whatever because that, as much as I like watching Beyonce on the Coachella stream, like it's not the same as being at Coachella for the live performance. And so that there's something there that doesn't translate. So again apologies on another diatribe but more like what's your excitement for music 
in the coming decades and where do you see uh, more opportunity for House of Blues or or Live Nation? Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I think it still comes back now to regional promoting. Like, I, we, we do a really great job. If, if you're a band that has, you know, some uh, some amount of fan base, some amount of recognition, you know, we can put you on our stages, and, and I think we, we've been able to show that we can help you sell more tickets. You know, if, if the other promoter sold 750 tickets with you in this market, you know, with us, you know, you sold 945, you know, and, and uh, because we're really good at promoting. I think I think the future for us on the club and theater level is how, how do we help take this band that can sell 500 tickets in Orange County, you know, grow them to 1,000 or more in Orange County and start to sprinkle them, mm. sell 400 tickets in San Diego, and we bring you back and you sell 600 and 800, and then you've got a fan base. I think regional promoting, I think, is sort of the next frontier for us because we have to be part of the discovery now. You know, we can't just take known acts and – do a better job of promoting them than they could without us. We also need to start identifying talent, I think, and, and helping them into the food chain. I think that's fun because I don't. I feel like that's got to be an exciting part of your job. Like baking big acts feels like it's probably systematic at this point. They have a price, they have this, but like being able to spot like fun young talent, uh, just as a fun like exit. Like, do you do you have any good talent I should be looking out for? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I you know I can't I can't give you one off the top of my head, yeah. you know, but uh but I hope next time I talk to you I'm gonna have three. Yeah, put you. me on. I need I need to be put on to more music. So yeah. Walter, before we kind of close the show, yep. um can you talk about some of like the iconic food menu items that people when they're walking by a house of blues in any part of the country what should they be ordering and why? Yeah, um, well, definitely visually, our, our smokehouse platters, they're, they're pretty stunning. Big old sheet tray with some wax paper, mounds of meat and dress slaw and oh, beans yeah. and cornbread and everything's all made from scratch, like er everything in our kitchen is. So the visual on that's really cool. One of our new dishes is the uh, country fried steak. Comes in a gigantic cast iron skillet. Damn mounds of our, our mashed potatoes and gravy amazing uh visuals with with those items for sure oh my god sounds like we're going soon yeah. <laughs> yeah. i'm just and fucking the, salivating <laughs> don't forget about cocktails too we've really uh um enhanced our game with with craft cocktails we're making syrups in-house now yeah. everything's super fresh nothing's processed so say, same with our food so eli and i have conversations um about and about Disneyland and I'll, and I'll connect it in a second. But when they're debuting new menu items, because of the amount of traffic and volume that they do, sometimes they have to appease to a lower common denominator. So it's like it's, it's the cocktail program in the new like Star Wars land. Yeah. It's like something that, in my opinion, is kind of built more for like someone who doesn't drink craft cocktails right. than it is for um, the craft cocktail head. someone who's like loves tiki bars in Los Angeles. Again, you guys do so much volume through your restaurants. How do you balance the, I want to create something new and delicious and craft with 
Uh, I don't control who comes into the restaurant mm-hmm. all the time because yeah. if it's a sold out country show, that's going to be a different demographic than if it's a sold out hip hop show. And we're talking about very different people eating at the same tables that you guys present food at. So what's your approach and, and balance there as it relates to the food in the restaurant? All right. Well, we, we can make any cocktail. We, we got some great bartenders and managers that can that can whip some stuff up. So if a guest doesn't want what's on the menu and that applies to food as well, right, because everything's scratched. So we, we can appease anybody. Um, but you, you brought up like uh, Disney there, I think. So I'll talk about the Orlando venue. So right right outside the restaurant and bar. We have this cool little deck area with some seating and a little smokehouse outside, and that has a different menu also. Mm. So there, there are easier options for some sandwiches and whatnot and, and different cocktails on that menu as well. So is the foundation room, if I gather, is that kind of the place for your executive chef team in each location to kind of shine? If the kind of the core dining menu is, you know, again, just ha- has to be able to meet the 2000 people that are there for a show um is the foundation room kind of like the elevated menu where um you're gonna kind of i don't know just see see more seasonal changes or see more new items is that kind of what i'm gathering uh yeah yeah kind of and let me let me give a quick shout out to the executive chefs out there we got some amazing people so i wouldn't say that we dedicate them uh most of their time to foundation rooms i think that the executive chef kind of has to go with the flow if we have like a whole house buyout or a really big special event then that's where he's going to go and one of the sous chefs will take care of something else if we know we have a sold out show and the restaurant's going to get smashed for a few hours executive chef's going to be you know in the pointing trenches. fingers and yeah. getting in the trenches and doing that in the restaurant so it really depends on what's going on if we have a member event in our foundation room yeah absolutely the executive chef's going to be up there making sure every plate's perfect before it goes out how how big is the staff in the average like house of blues with the kitchen because i I honestly have no idea, but when I step into your dining room, and if I imagine that dining room's full, I imagine that's a pretty healthy back of house that's needed to execute yeah. that many turns. Yeah, sure. Well, we don't have a ton of stations on our line, so it, it would get a little too cramped at times, depending on the location, of course. I mean, our, our venues are all totally unique, and that applies to the kitchen setups as well. So I'll take Vegas, for example, which is one, our second busiest restaurant um they'll have up to like 15 people in the kitchen um but if you take one of the slower venues on an off night with no show i mean you could you can get it done with a chef and two guys back there kind of thing so it really all depends on what's going on what's the busiest venue you guys have uh restaurant would be orlando restaurant orlando yeah and then music venue wise music venue with that's a mic one chicago chicago i would i'm guessing i'm not as close to that side now but i think chicago it's a a right size and a major market Mm. Yeah, Boston. Boston's, Boston's the busiest one, yeah. actually. Okay, music-wise, interesting. But they have a restaurant with like I think twelve tables or something in it. Yeah, <laughs> it's that, super tiny. Yeah. <laughs> it's much bigger club than it is a restaurant there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it, it, lots of different dynamics out there from venue to venue, which is actually really cool. Traveling around, doing trainings and whatnot, and seeing all the different nuances and how you have to change execution with the team. Yeah, basically different restaurants. Yeah, that's crazy. Cool, guys. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything people should look out for? Uh, we're going to put all the handles for House of Blues out there, but can <laughs> they follow course. you guys specifically? You guys on Instagram, anything like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Every every venue has their own. 
So it would be H-O-B plus the city city name after that. Yeah. So like H-O-B Anaheim, that'd be fantastic. What are you guys personally? You guys have personal accounts that people can follow if, they, if they're tuning in right now? On Instagram? Ooh, I don't have a I'm living one. an anonymous life. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I send a smoke signal. I go on. They'll get it to you. I'll give you They'll my work email <laughs> or my LinkedIn or something. Well, I appreciate you guys for listening, and I appreciate our guest today. So thank you guys so much. And uh, until next week, guys, this has been The Catch-Up. Yeah, make sure to leave a review anywhere you can. Leave a review. Uh, you've been listening to Book of Eli. Eli Hello. on Instagram. I'm Jeffrey Kutnick. And uh, follow us for, for more information and new episodes. So, guys, we really appreciate you making the time to step on the show. And uh, it was a fun history to learn about an iconic venue set. So, appreciate you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>